0: This is the We Fish with Phoenix Boats podcast, built by anglers for anglers.
1: Hello, everybody. Thank you guys for joining in. We're here today on another episode of We Fish with Phoenix Boats. Uh, I am your co-host, as always, doing the little intro here today for Tim. Tim's sitting here with me, and today we're actually interviewing Bradley Hallman. Uh, We've been talking about Bradley for a while, looking forward to this interview. Uh, Bradley has a different story than what we've been hearing here lately so i'm really excited to talk to him you know he started out with the inaugural group of elite anglers back in 2006 um, and then took a break after a while after the grind kind of got to him so be interesting to hear his take on what that mental grind looks like and how you rejuvenate yourself and get ready to get back after it again
2: oh absolutely and uh man good job on the intro we may have to switch things up uh (laughs) no but brad uh he's got an awesome story um just how he was able to bounce back, his love of fishing, it's it's apparent when you talk to him. Uh, big Oklahoma Sooners fan. I'm sure we're going to get into some football talk.
1: Oh, yeah, I um, imagine.
2: But he's got a lot going on, been pushing a new YouTube. Um, and it's really – he's putting out some awesome content here too.
1: He is. And, and I think something that we can touch on with Bradley is something that a lot of people overlook, how mentally exhausting it can be to mm-hmm. be at that level. Yep. Um, not only are you going against the best of the best every tournament you roll up, you're away from your family. You're traveling. Um, your livelihood is on the line every time you put that boat in the water. Mm-hmm. You know that, that's a lot of stress that can add up over time. Um, and I know his family had expanded during that time frame, so he's got a wife at home trying to get a business going. You know, young children. Oh yeah. You know, every bit of that weighs on you while you're out there. Mm-hmm. Um, heck, I stress enough over a Wednesday night or what I'm going to do. <laughs> you know, and that doesn't matter at the end of the day. No, so, it doesn't. <laughs> um, it, It'll be, it'll be cool to get his take on how that went.
2: Oh, absolutely. Well, let's dial up Mr. Holman. Let's get him on the line, and y'all stay tuned. We'll be right back.
1: At Phoenix Boats, our passion for fishing is obvious. Whether it's a pro event or fishing with our family and friends. We truly love the sport of fishing. That's why our goal is to make every single Phoenix boat that goes out the door, the best fishing platform it can be in both design and construction.
2: We love to fish as much as anyone, and we believe it shows in every boat we build. Phoenix Boats, built by anglers
1: for anglers.
2: All right, welcome back, everybody. We got with us Bradley Holman out of Norman, Oklahoma, checking in to uh, see what he's been up to this offseason. Bradley, how you doing, buddy?
1: I'm doing
0: good, guys. What are y'all up to?
2: Man, just living the dream right now.
1: Yeah, just trying to get it started. But I do want to clarify, you know, Tim said Norman, Oklahoma, but you grew up in Tennessee, correct?
0: Uh, yeah, I did. I actually grew up in East Tennessee uh, in Rome County, right on Watts Bar Lake.
2: Right on. Do you miss Watts Bar at all?
0: Man, I did growing up. So uh, I had divorced parents, and I, I had the privilege of growing up in two places Oklahoma and Tennessee. My dad was in Tennessee, and I spent a lot of time there with him. I was actually born in Harriman Hospital there off I 40, and I graduated high school in Harriman, Tennessee. So that probably makes me a Tennessean, but um, all of my adult life has been spent in Oklahoma. I came to visit my mom. Um, for the summer after I graduated high school and I took a job with a plumbing company there in Norman. I left 13 years later, you know, summer job, how those work out sometimes.
2: <laughs> yeah. I still wish I could go sell some fireworks here and there. I hear you. So growing up, uh, you kind of got a little bit of both worlds there as far as fishing, you know, fishing in Oklahoma and, uh, Tennessee. Do you think that helped, uh, help shape you a little bit into the, to the angler you are now?
0: Yeah. I mean, Tennessee is, Dude, Tennessee is definitely where I got my love for fishing. You know, mm-hmm. my dad's the one that introduced me to it, and uh, I grew up fishing on Watts Bar Lake with him. He was he was never a tournament fisherman or anything like that, um, anything that would bite. So, I mean, I can remember getting up before school and going around the trot lines, um, checking our stuff that he would put out in the summertime or, you know, early spring, and the trout fishing on the Clinch River—I can't tell you how many hours I spent below Norris Lake on uh, the Clinch River trout fishing. Uh, it was—it was my passion, it was my love, and that's definitely where I developed it. Um, when I moved to Oklahoma um, at 18, um, like I said, I went to work for these guys, at the plumbing company, and they—they they were all bass fishermen, tournament fishermen, and um, that's—they were the kind of got me started into tournament fishing. There was quite a few guys there that I worked with and all had boats and I started fishing with them and that's really what got me going. So all of my tournament experience honestly has all been done in Oklahoma, but no doubt my first love of just the actual chasing a fish and getting a bike definitely started in East Tennessee. How
1: long did it take you to go get your first boat?
0: Well, like I say, that summer job, that was probably part of it. That summer job became a full-time job within three or four months. So, um, I was 18 or 19 years old, uh, and I bought one while I was working for them. Now, we call it a boat. That first thing was this was a boat that would like the console would fire, would start underneath it after takeoff. (laughs) You know, all the cool things that we go through with our first boats. But uh, yeah, I was probably 19 years old. I've probably been working there about six or seven months. Uh, Like, I bought a truck, and like six months after I bought a truck, I had a boat. So I had a boat pretty early.
2: What kind of boat was it?
0: It was a 1982 Skeeter, 18-footer with a 150 Mariner that blew up two days after I purchased it. I blew the motor up. Oh,
2: man. (laughs) You think that that guy kind of knew it was about to go?
0: No. No? I think that uh, looking back, knowing what I know now, um, I I definitely blew it up. They may have changed the prop out on it before they sold it to me. Probably wasn't the prop that they were running and it would catch air and spin, and I got aggravated because it wouldn't get out of the hole and kind of kept my foot into it too long and popped it. <laughs> That's
2: pretty good, but though.
0: What you know color was it? You know when you're young and you're learning, it was a, kind of a dull, well-sun-faded, extremely rough-feeling gray.
2: <laughs> rough-feeling gray. <laughs> yeah. So pretty much it was, I mean, incognito
0: on the water. Oh, though. yeah, dude. I, I swear, I can tell you, I remember one time one of my – team partners we were fishing a tournament and we'd just taken off and run you know five miles up the lake and started fishing and it's early in the morning he's like i smell smoke and i'm like somebody's probably camping he goes no it's electrical (laughs) he goes oh (laughs) god the console's on fire
1: (laughs) sounds like growing up with my dad and the boats we used to fish in
2: (laughs) i think everyone can has a boat story like that did you guys do well in that tournament
0: no, no, we didn't do well in that tournament, but it's just something that I'll always remember. You know, it's, uh, it's the hard knocks in life. We, we we learn lessons the hard way and we tend to remember them better.
2: Absolutely. At least I,
0: do.
2: well, I don't think if you took it easy, you probably wouldn't learn yeah. anything out of it. So when did it, we, uh, transition from, uh, this, uh, 82 Skeeter with a Mariner smoking up and, uh, basically toasting marshmallows on it to, uh, making that jump to decide to fish the Opens.
0: You know, it was, it was, it was a long road there. Like I say, I was working and going to school at the University of Oklahoma and I was just fishing local stuff around Oklahoma. And, and you know how it is when you're young. I think I started in the, in the nineties fishing as a co-angler in the, back then it was the old Redman circuits. Mm -hmm. And it kind of took me up into the Northeastern regions of Oklahoma or Grand Lake and, Fort Gibson and Lakey Falls, some of the big lakes in Oklahoma that a lot of the money was being played for in the bigger tournaments. And, um, you know, I got to know more people, met more people. Um, Terry Butcher and Jason Christie and Edwin Evers and myself were all about the same age. And um, those guys all fished with their dads. Edwin was down by Texoma and played with his son. but, But mainly Butcher and Christie and myself, Um, spent a lot of time competing against each other, Um, became friends, obviously being the same age and fishing that much. And at the time, Butcher was really, he was kind of the lead dog. He was really, really, really good. And along that same time frame in the early 2000s, um, tournament fishing changed a lot. I know it did nationwide, you know, local stuff, but it, it really did in Oklahoma. What I mean by that is the amount of money that we were able to fish for, um, we started seeing these twenty thousand dollar events, you know, for a weekend one day local tournament being the winning prize and it really stepped up the competition level and mm-hmm. really got me going in my juices and I know Jason Christie and, and, and Terry Butcher the same. We all three played into that and you know, they were big tournaments, three and four hundred boats and a lot of competitors, but um it really made all of us better and you know, going through four or five years of that in our late 20s, by the time I was probably 29, I think is when I decided to start fishing some opens. I'd won BFL or two by the end and had some successes at, at, you know, fishing around the state of Oklahoma and kind of started wanting to travel and fish some regional stuff. And uh, by 2006, I think is when I qualified. 2005, I qualified for the Elite Series. And had pretty much by that point decided that, you know, the people that I had surrounded myself with in life and what I was doing, I, I pretty well knew that's what I wanted to do if it was at all possible, you know. Um, so by 2006, I, I made that jump. That was actually the inaugural year of the Elite Series when they kind of went from being the top 150. Mm-hmm. You know, Bassmaster had that top 150 tour Ooh. and then started the Elite Series. And I was I was part of that first group in '06
2: oh and that was i mean espn was involved uh economy was up yeah. i mean that was a uh, that was a big time for bass fishing
0: yeah man everything was booming and, and like you said espn had just purchased it um they were throwing a lot of money at it uh, disney was involved you know they brought everybody down to disney world for that first classic and all the things that were going on it was being held down there on the lake of semi which is just right outside of orlando and um it was it was future was bright at last at the time, you know, lots going on.
2: Oh, it was definitely an exciting time. How'd that first season feel for you? I mean, how, how would you grade it?
0: Um, you know, probably it's what everybody thinks when they look back, but I I wasn't prepared, um, for what it was. I wasn't prepared for that travel and that grind, learning how to catch fish. I, I don't think I realized how, you know different fisheries were especially when you got up in the northeastern part of the united states those were 11 back then we were fishing 11 events in a season so so there was a lot of tournaments involved mm-hmm. and um, we went from florida to california to new york and it was a long season um i had a great time i learned a tremendous amount um and like i say i'm sure a lot of guys look back and think that they weren't ready and, and can say that i'm sure most uh, most everybody can um but, you know, looking back, there was a lot of rookies in that class, too. And, I, and I'm i friends with a lot of those guys still. There's a lot of guys still fishing out of that rookie class of that elite series a lot. And there was a lot of really good fishermen in it. Um, and I was, you know, quite honestly, I was more prepared than more than half of them there. So to say that I felt like I wasn't prepared is probably just how, you know, we grade ourselves. Mm-hmm.
2: But. Your standards may be higher than than others
0: yeah i mean you just wanted to do better you know you wanted to like we all do you want to cash check every tournament but that, that that's that's not how it works that's not how it works even after the guys have been doing it for 20 years but mm-hmm. um it was it was a great season we started at amistad you know probably the thing that really stands out to me about my rookie season was just how good everybody was on the elite series and how good they caught them but that was the year that you know they set it up to where we went to all these slug fests i mean we started at. at, at Amistad in 2006, and that's when Amistad was just jam full of big ones. They slammed them there. We drove straight to Rayburn. It was a back to back event. Rayburn was full fledged spawn. Giants were being caught there. We went from there to Santee Cooper, mm-hmm. which I'd never seen. And This is where I kind of get out of my element and uh, for the first time, like really out of it. And practice was horrendous. I'll never forget this tournament. Practice was terrible. I think I might have caught one 12 inch bass. And had one bite in three days but at the end of day three of practice I saw a fish kind of dart off of a bed look like a bed and I, and I got to looking I turned my trolling motor on high and I had about three hours left to practice and I, I just kind of swung out in the middle of this pocket and there was a bass out there that was the biggest thing that I think I had ever seen on a on a bed spawning bed it was a female with a male the male was probably about four and a half five pounds and she was well over 10 i thought and they would they would eat they would attack the trolling motor that's how aggressive they were and so i mean great time to find one right i mean like the very end of practice like there's a good chance she's gonna be here so it's 20 miles away from from uh takeoff or 30 and i ran straight to her the next morning and caught the male and her and uh she's close to 10 she's nine something but um went on through the day just sight fishing and ended up with well over thirty pounds and thought, you know, well I'm gonna have the biggest bag that's been weighed in, you know, like I'm gonna be leading this event. Right. And I got in and I'll never forget, I pulled up mr Terry Butcher. He was already on the bank and he'd already been weighing and he said, How'd you do and I said, I had a really good day. And he said, he said, Yeah. And he said, well what do you think you got? And I said, I don't know, over thirty. And he said, Well, you had a good day. <laughs> and I said, You think I'll be leading? And he goes, No. He said, Preston down there, he said, he's got to have two bags to carry his fish. They think he's got over 40. That tournament was unreal. Unreal. Yeah, I think I was in like fourth or fifth place after that first day, and I had like 32 or 33 pounds. Just It was an eye-opening experience. One, how good those guys were. Two, just how good different parts of the country really, really were.
2: He had like 100, what, 115, 116 in that tournament?
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's. Crazy. I mean, he walked away with it. Nobody was even close to him, you know.
2: Unreal. You think we'll ever see another tournament like that?
0: Yeah, definitely. I, I definitely think we will. Um, there's there's lakes that come up and down. You know, it's, you know how lakes mm-hmm. tend to uh, change. And like Rayburn's extremely good right now. Um, I was involved in a team event down there this year where um, that may be the biggest bagger waiting. What was it, forty? Forty
2: eight. Yeah, yeah, I do. I remember seeing that one.
0: Um, I was there. Andrew Upshaw and I were team partners in that event, and uh, fished that event. And I think we had like twelve pounds. <laughs> that guy had like five fish that weighed <laughs> as much as our whole five.
2: Uh, That's got to be just the weirdest feeling to think you had thirty pounds, and that may not even get you in the top five.
0: I know it was a, it was a, it was a good thing to have happen, but it was also a, you know. And I actually, that day that, that day at the Open, or at the Open, that Elite Series event, I actually left a fish that was, I don't know, she was close to eight. She was seven to eight pounds. And I had her down on my bait. I'll never forget this. And, like, I, I could have caught her. And it was towards the end of the day, and I'm thinking, I'm going to cull, like, a five pounder out of my boat for this, you know, two pound call And I'm like, tomorrow, I'm going to be begging for that fish. So, I left her. And, uh, yeah, she wasn't there the next day. I yeah. wish I would smoke her.
1: What what is your biggest five fish bag?
0: Probably that. Yeah, um, thirty two something. Yeah, that's probably the biggest five fish limit I've ever weighed in.
1: What about your biggest fish?
0: Now, I've had a lot of guys ask me that, and I, I don't know. You know, I've had some fish, even like that one that day that I caught that um i didn't weigh that fish ever uh, that fish might have been 10 might have been nine i don't know it was i've never put so i heard brian thrift say this and i'm in the same boat as him i've never hung a 10 pounder on a scale that said you know fishing it said 10 pounds so i guess i officially haven't ever caught a 10 pounder but um i may have i may have caught a couple i caught one at raven one time that was really really big in practice and there was a lot of people around and i just slipped it off the hook and put it back in the water because i didn't want to be seen with it but. mm-hmm so, officially, I've never caught a 10-pounder. So, 9-pounders are the biggest I've caught. You know, Oklahoma, we don't have those kind of fish. You know, I have to travel somewhere. You know, it's like you guys in Tennessee. Y'all don't really truly have many places that have that size of fish either. You no, know?
2: we don't. No, I mean, Gunnersville is the closest thing to us that could have that or Chick. I mean, there would be yeah. only two places. Well, yeah, that. that's
0: right. You guys do have Chick. Yeah, I forget about that. But, um, you know, just generally speaking, I mean, 7, 8-pounders are usually the biggest Some of the biggest fish
1: in our fisheries, you know. Oh, yeah. You had mentioned just a second ago about you caught a big one in practice and you slipped it off the hook because there's people around. Yeah. What, What other strategies do you have to run through during a practice day, things like that, just to not key off, you know, or give away what you've keyed into or anything?
0: You know, probably just not catching them. I was actually, we were filming a YouTube video just the other day, Mark Jeffries and I, and we got into them. And I mean, we had just a stellar day and just caught them. And it was so easy on spinnerbait. And he actually made the comment Mark did to me. He said, he said, well, you probably get days like this all the time, don't you? And, and at first I was kind of thinking like, yeah. And then I stopped and I said, no, no, not really. <laughs> <laughs> he goes, really? You don't get days? like I said, well, yeah. I mean, we may run into five or six days like this a year. But usually it's in practice, and we'll catch like one or two, maybe three at the most of them. And then we cover our stuff up, and we just get the bites. Like, we don't really know what it is. And then you come back two days later for the tournament, and it's never the same. They don't bite as good. So it's not often that you get days where you just get to rail them. But that's kind of some of the things that happen to us in practice that, you know, happens to everybody. happens to all of us. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not often that you get bit that good in practice and you shake them all off or cover your hook up and then you come back and you still get the same amount of bites that you got when you found them. Usually, usually, if they are biting that good, usually there's 20 other boats in there with you or you get back and there's nothing there. You know, they've all moved off.
2: Well, as we, uh, I'm going to go back real quick. So we go from Santee, you finish out and you fish, what, all the way up to 2011? Was your last year yep. on the Elites? Yeah, that's correct. Did you ever start to have just some mental grind that was wearing you down on that? I mean, all the travel. Uh, Obviously, you guys were 11 events then, but even as it did slow down some to eight and nine events, I mean, that's still, that's a toll.
0: Man, it was. And, uh, you know, during that time frame of 06 to 11 was was the year of 2008, which was, you know, really, really bad economy. Everything kind of crashed and fell and really hurt our fishing industry. It hurt sponsor money for everyone involved. It, just, it was a really big impact on our industry, especially boat manufacturers. Mm-hmm. Just huge. And um, anyway, um, all that being entailed, I started out, um, my wife and I, we just had our first child uh, when I started. And by 2011, we had three. And so I basically had three babies at home with a wife who's trying to run her own law firm and lots of responsibilities for her at home. I and mean, she was basically paying the bill you know, and, and, um, just being me and how I was raised, I felt a lot of obligation to that and to those children and to my wife. And, um, it was, it was hard on me mentally to go out and focus on what I needed to focus on fishing. And it got to the point where I wasn't catching them very good. Um, I had never just walked in and had the success of a Derek Remitz or somebody like that that just kind of stepped in and just, it, it just clicked for them. You know, it was I was catching fish, but I wasn't catching them where I wanted to be catching them, need to be catching them. I wasn't making classics and things like that, and it was just difficult for me mentally to stay focused. I can I can remember one event in particular up at Champlain, it was in the summertime, somewhere around the Fourth of July, and. Um, this family was out on a Saturday. I had made the cut. I'd made the you know, the Saturday cut, whatever that was back then top 50, top 30, I don't know, but it's good. you're getting a 10000 dollars check, so you should be happy. Mm-hmm. And I can remember watching this family on this dock having a picnic on a Saturday with the kids and the dad and the mom. And I just remember thinking to myself, "What in the hell are you doing, a1,000 miles away, 2,000 miles away, from your family?" chasing this stupid fish that doesn't matter. You know, it was just, those were the kinds of feelings that I had. And, and it just, it took a toll on me, you know, and I spent the last two years of my dad passed away in 2009 um, while I was on the elite series. And I know 2010, 2011, that all that just really kind of had a huge effect on me. I I didn't think it would, but you know, it, it did. And and it just, I wanted to be home with my kids and my family, and I didn't want to be out there running the roads if it just wasn't making sense financially. It would have been different if I'd have been Edwin Evers and I was pulling down six figures and supporting my family with what was happening. But truthfully, what was happening is I was, you know, good years. If I was breaking even, I was doing good. So I didn't feel like, you know, that I was doing my part. And so by 2011, I was just, I was mad at it. I was mad at the sport. I was mad at bass fishing. I was—I I can remember—I came home. I told my wife, I'm like, I'm done. Um, some of the last events on the Elite Series, I wasn't even weighing fish. Like, nobody does that in pro bass fishing. If you—if if I didn't have enough fish to get a check, and I knew I didn't, I wouldn't even go across the stage. I'd just throw them back. And I didn't care about the points. I didn't care where I stood. I, I, it didn't matter. I was just burnt out and ready to come home i told my wife i said i'm I'm ready to sell my boat sell all my tackle and i'm just done with the sport you know i'm never gonna do it again and uh luckily for me she was like you might just stick it in the garage for a while (laughs) (laughs) just close the door and just forget you got it but don't go selling everything just yet
2: well she knew what you had paid for it yeah that's right (laughs) there's a lot of guys yeah that rod only cost 50 bucks
0: yeah
2: get rid of it so how did you uh I mean, how'd you even get up to go practice if you just were that mad at it? I mean, you just going, how'd you get up to even go practice for those last few events? I mean, just going through the motions, you're just like, I'm here, I'm just going to go fish. And
0: Yeah, you know, I went to every one of them and I finished the season out that year. And uh, I don't even recall the last event, to be honest with you. I, I cashed a check and a couple of them. Maybe I cashed a check in the last one. I, I don't even recall, but... By that point, it was just about just trying to get some of the money back, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, I was still a good enough fisherman that I knew that, you know, on any given day that I could make some things happen. But um, with tournament fishing, when you get in that grind, you know, when you're doing well, um, and this is for me personally, when when I feel like, you know, I'm doing well and doing my job, doing my head's where it needs to be, if I put my head down and I focus at some point through the day, something's going to happen. I'm either going to get a bite or I'm going to see something, or I'm going to notice something that's going to flip a switch. And that switch is a light switch is what I call it. And it's going to turn on the light in my brain to where I understand five or six more things that are going on that will allow me to catch what I need to catch to get paid. Mm -hmm. And those things always happen, you know, for me, except for in those last two, two years or so there at the elite series where I just felt like, you know, I would grind and grind and grind, but then no good things ever came from it. I never got those light switches to go off or I wouldn't get that one bite that I needed to kind of clue me in. I would just continue to struggle and struggle. And, um, that road just became very difficult to keep grinding on. But, you know, by the last couple, like you asked, I don't even remember them. Mm-hmm. I, I, I do remember this. I remember feeling like the weight of the world had been lifted off of my shoulders Coming home from that last event. I remember that. I remember being happy that it was over and that I was done and never gonna fishing again.
2: That's interesting. What'd you do when you got home?
0: Put that boat in the garage, shut the doors to it. And then like, you know, you spent basically your entire life. By this time I was in my, I don't know, mid thirties. And you, you've you spent your life trying to get to this, achieve this goal of what you want to do as a career. So now you kind of had to decide what are, what are you going to do with the rest of your life? And I, and I really didn't know the answers to those questions. And and there was a lot of things in the air. And uh, so I just, I just kind of came home and um, I took some time. I started building some stuff around the house. I built, I built all kinds of stuff. I built a swimming pool. I built outdoor kitchen that was, should go to a $2 million house. (laughs) Um, I mean, I laid the bricks, I poured the concrete. I I did it all. I had track hose and sky tracks. I had all kinds of stuff over there and, um, working and, and I'd learned how to do all that from, from, from when I was worked for the plumbing company for 13 years. So, um, I just kind of went under construction around my house for about nine months. And a friend of mine, an older gentleman wanted to take me to lunch and, he owned a land company, uh, something in Oklahoma and Texas here that they um, buy oil and gas uh, leases and things like that for petroleum land management jobs. What it's called anyway. He had a bunch of guys that worked for him all over the United States, and he was like, "Hey, I've got a good gig for you if you want to come in and do this. Um, I, I've got the guys have been doing it for forty years. They can teach you how. Uh, office is right here in Norman. It pays good and." Um, it has a lot of freedom to where you could fish if you wanted to. And at the time I was like, well, I don't care about the freedom of fishing, but all the rest of it sounds
2: good because
0: mm-hmm. I'm never fishing again, <laughs> <laughs> but he was actually a fisherman and, um, his son was actually on the elite series at that time that this actually happened. And, um, so I went to work for him, Jeff Miller, and, and he was great. Um, was great for me. All the people he worked with were great. And I worked there for seven years. And he and I started fishing team tournaments. He's kind of the one that was like, hey, you know, I'll uh, I'll pay the bill for all the entry fees and the hotels. You just crawl on the boat with me because his son was gone fishing the Elite Series. And he's mm-hmm. like, I need a partner. And um, he kind of got my juices flowing again, you know, no doubt about it. And at first I was kind of hesitant. But then when I started fishing back home, um, you know, all the old friends and relationships that i'd had and lakes that i hadn't spent any time on in a long time it all just kind of started that fire going again you know and at first it was just a little little ember but it it came back and then it got to the point where after a year or so of that i wouldn't go leave the state to fish anything like opens or coasts but if they came into the border state of oklahoma i'd defend the border like madman like i didn't care who was in <laughs> I, I red my river showdown yeah, I would. Texas. It didn't matter where they came if They came into Oklahoma. I'd fish them. That's awesome. And uh, did well in all those, you know. And I don't know. It just kind of grew and grew until it got to the point where, you know, I knew that that's kind of what I want to do was go back. And that was by 2015. I, I knew that I wanted to fish at a national level again.
2: Do you think that was uh, the plan Miller had for you the whole time?
0: I think that, you know, he had a son that had the same love for the sport that I do. And I think that, yeah, yeah. I, I think that he thought that, that was probably a possibility. Maybe not. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. he wasn't pushy about it by any means. Um, I think he was just very understanding and he knew how hard the road was that I had been on.
2: He kind of Mr. did you.
0: He kind of did. <laughs> yeah.
2: Get you back into did. it.
0: But after that he time kind of off, did.
2: I mean, you had an itch that kind of couldn't be scratched and you came out of the gates swinging there. Uh, you won in, what, 16, so that would have been just two years after? At Oak yeah, Cherry.
0: so, um, yeah, I mean, 2011, so I probably went to work for him in 12. And, and I changed a lot, of my, a lot of my fishing relationships during that point, too. Um, Phoenix Boats was a big part of that. Um, I had been with Skeeter Boats for a long, long time. And so when I left the elite series, I just wanted away. I mean, Skeeter wasn't the only sponsor. I wanted away from all the affiliations and people. Not that they had ever done anything bad to me
2: mm-hmm.
0: or anything like that. I just, I just wanted to disconnect. I didn't want the memories or the thoughts of any of that stuff. Because I mean, like I say at the time, I thought I'd never fish again. And then about a year later, when I thought, you know, I'm gonna start doing some other things, actually Gary was who I called.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, I was just fishing a local level. I was like, look, I'm just fishing in Oklahoma. I'm not ever fishing pro again or anything like that but it was a different type of relationship where it wasn't a corporate business owned by a corporation with lots of you know the, the, phoenix was a company that was owned by individuals people that you know if i had something that was bothering me i could pick up the phone and call the person you know what i mean mm-hmm. does that make sense
2: oh absolutely that's what something we I talked continu- about
0: i have continued to surround myself with companies just like that big bite same way mm-hmm. um and, and I just for me and my personality, business wise, it's a better situation for me, a better fit. But uh, yeah, so by 2015, um, I knew I wanted to fish on tour again and kind of just wanted to fish the FLWs because I felt like it was a shorter schedule. It wasn't as long, it wasn't as many events, and a little more family oriented and would fit my schedule and my lifestyle better, which it did. Right. It did at the time. And, and uh, so. I wanted to do that, and so I, I qualified through the Coastas in 15 and actually won a Costa on Grand Lake in Oklahoma in 15 and then qualified for the FLW Tour. And then rest is kind of, you know, like you said, started off pretty good. So,
2: Well, how'd that success feel after a time off? I mean, winning a Dude, Costa and then winning an, you know, that event in Okeechobee. I mean, that's gonna feel yeah. awesome. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, 2016, the very first tournament. uh, Okeechobee, you know, I'd struggled all through practice. I'd I'd gone down there with a mindset that I wanted to flip, and I just never backed off of it. And um, when I found those fish the last day of practice, I was just so excited to go to go try to catch them. And just like I talked about earlier, you know, a lot of times they're not there, and those fish were still there, and it was it was just lights out after day one. And I, I think day one it just felt good, you know, but day two when it happened again, I was like, hey, homie you know you're in the driver's seat now son you're the only one who can mess this up and and uh I, I remember thinking to myself my aunt was with me and she was asking me she'd driven me down there and stayed with me all that week and she and i were staying together we're by ourselves and she asked me that the second night she goes well, you think you can win this thing or you think it just slips away or you know what happens here does, does somebody else catch him?" and i said you know six years ago seven years ago i probably wasn't ready or mature enough to handle this. But I said, I've done this long enough that, you know, I'm ready for this. I can get this done in the next two days. And I think I will. And, uh, and I truly felt that way. And I was fortunate that it worked out that way. It was, but, um, I'd had a pretty good lead. I felt like I had the, the honey hole to do it. That's really what that tournament was about. was about, it was a really good area and I had the right presentation. And if I just stuck with it over four days, I felt like I was going to win. Um, so did that it worked out.
1: Did that win on Okeechobee? Did that give you that validation and that that thought process? Okay, I'm right back on the right track, of where I'm supposed to be right now in life.
0: Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent, without a doubt. How and, long does you it... know, validation that the validation that hey, you can do this, hey, you are good enough, hey, all these years of hard work, you know, do pay off. You know, dude. I mean, like we talked about, it, it's it's hard. I mean, it's not easy. I mean, there's just not many guys that go out there and just brandon polonix of the world that it just clicks you know mm-hmm. i mean there's a lot of great fishermen that i've watched come and go that that just can't make it um there's just so much to this sport more than just catching fish in a tournament and and, and catching them in the tournaments is so important also i mean it, it all comes together and it's hard i mean it's hard emotionally it's hard physically it's hard
2: mm-hmm. how long does a win like that carry you as far as momentum mentally
0: I think that's different for everyone.
2: How long did it carry you?
1: You didn't have to wait long for the next one.
0: (laughs) Honestly, Tim, it's probably still carrying me to this day. Like, I just don't have any reservations anymore about what kind of fisherman I am. Um, I'm fair and honest with everyone. I don't have any enemies in this sport. You know, I'm honest and I I try to be a fair player and, and I work as hard as anybody out there. And I know that on any given day with the right circumstances, I can compete with anybody. I don't care who's there. Well, I
1: think I would feel the same way. I look at it, you know, when you look at professional level of any sport, um, you know, we, we know how many people that we know locally that fish and then you take it to the next level and the next level and the next level, it gets smaller and smaller and smaller in those groups. And, and even when you boil it down to the professional level of fishing, how many people can say they've actually won a tournament at that level? You know, that list right. really isn't that long when you look at how many people call themselves fishermen. You know, the percentage is still a really small percent. So,
0: I, I totally agree.
2: So then with the uh, Lanier one, you carry that even further.
0: Yeah. <laughs> That's when it started getting a little silly, you know, like, holy cow, man, am I really able to, am I really doing this? Uh, Lanier kind of came along. And, and, and when Lanier came along, honestly, after a couple of days of that, you know, I really had that that confidence again, you know, that, that comes back in just from doing it. And it wasn't some two or th- you know, two years of FLW tour guys. I mean, this, this goes back to, you know, Jason Christie and Terry butcher on grand mm-hmm. Lake, trying to win a championship for a bass boat. You know, I mean, this stuff really is deep for me. It's not just some false confidence or I read a book or story on this. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really is deep, deep. I mean, it's been my entire life.
2: That's a culmination of a lot of sport. years. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I wouldn't um, think anyone would discredit that. I mean, just knowing how hard we see it from our side, guys work to get to where they're at and then to win one. Brian and I are still but, trying to win fruit jar tournaments around here. so.
0: I understand, man. I mean, I, I, we're going. To, we're talking about fishing a Tuesday night or tonight at Hefner. It's going to be hard to win if I go over there.
1: <laughs> well, me and Tim figured out how he and I can win. We just do a two-boat tournament. He's in one and I'm in the other we're guaranteed (laughs) one (laughs) of you's
0: guaranteed to win.
2: it's great for confidence it's (laughs) really coming in second you don't have to say how many boats are there well how about uh let's go back to uh what you're doing now though i mean you you've been pumping out a ton of content um you're on fishing eight opens this year once everything gets back up and rolling so uh you've had a little break here i've been seeing a ton of videos come out of you How, how are you uh enjoying that has that been a fun deal for you
0: so this is, this is by circumstance also, like just, just me being me and I, I just lucked into this deal. So no one would think COVID-19 was a good thing in the pro bass fishing side of it if you ask pro fishermen because they would not have any tournaments. But somehow th- this thing's been good. Mm-hmm. Um, we decided to leave, me and a couple of other guys, we, we decided to bow out of the FLW tour. And And we decided to go to the Bass Opens to try to qualify for the Elite Series. And that is 110% our goal. And then COVID-19 comes along after the first event of the year. We've only fished two tournaments. Well, one of my roommates is Scott Martin, who is Mr. U2. And um, Andrew Upshaw is also one of my roommates and Todd Castlevine. Well, Todd and Andrew and myself are kind of right here in Oklahoma and Texas. And we had actually started talking about the YouTube thing before we even went to the first event in Florida. And so we'd kind of started dabbling in it a little bit. And we, you know, just kind of getting our feelers out. And Wednesday event, spent the week there with Scott. We all had conversations with him about this, yay, nay, what would work, what wouldn't work, which direction we need to go. And we came home just extremely fired up about this new idea. But the problem is, is that with YouTubing, it's like you have to, one, be in front of the camera all the time and get comfortable with that, which, you know, we've spent some time in front of other people holding the camera on us. But just all the time, you just feel weird talking to a camera by yourself in a room. So you have to learn that. And then you also have to learn how the cameraman stuff like, you know, what's a good photo, what's a good frame. You know, how to shoot, how to work the cameras, how to keep them charged, how to, you know, check on. I mean, there's all this stuff. It's a huge learning curve there. And then the editing process on top of that. And then when you snowball that all together, there's a reason why guys go to college for four to six years to learn how to do this stuff.
2: You know? Oh, It's it's a uh, labor of love, I bet you.
0: It's it's, it's insane. So we came home, though, fired up. This is what we were going to do, you know? We're going to do this, and we were going to do it together as a group, and we have. We're still together as a group, and um, we we bounce ideas off of each other. Um, we, we've grown together. We use each other in our videos. Uh, we pu- we push each other's content, um, and it's helped us grow, and we have. We have grown. you know, For, for YouTube standards, we've grown really fast, really quick, but the COVID-19 helped us. Um, it allowed us – it gave us time to where – we didn't have the tournament schedule, so it allowed us to learn more about editing, more about our cameras, more about how to shoot, more, you know, all that stuff that we needed. It's given us that time, and uh, we've been able to take advantage of it, and I know that some of my sponsors have been extremely happy with what we've been able to do during this COVID time because it's a tough time on everybody, and tackling stuff really, sales have really been up for a lot of people, Um mm-hmm. You know, a lot of guys fishing, a lot of, you know, I'm sure you guys noticed. there's plenty of guys at the boat ramp during the COVID boat ramps were all full at all the lakes across the country. Like you lived in Michigan.
2: Yeah. yeah, It's been wide open 4th of July every weekend.
0: I know I've spent so, more on tackle during this. So YouTube has been a big deal. Um, I learned a lot about it. You know, we went to the classic. Uh, we had the classic, you know, before the COVID really kicked in. And, and we'd already started down that, that, that YouTube channel and, Tim, I can't tell you how powerful I've worked a lot of classics worked classics after winning $100,000 events. And the response of the people that came up to me at this classic outweighed probably all the others put together in numbers and volumes. Yeah. And it has nothing to do with winning any $100,000 tournaments or any anything. It was all based on that YouTube. That's how powerful that thing is. It's powerful dude it's powerful and um I, I hope i get hold of it better than what i do i mean i hope i keep growing with it and when you guys called today i, I stopped i was editing a video uh, today that's uh, so what i stopped to, to do this uh, podcast with you guys well I it's, know. it's a power it's a powerful tool and, and i hope that i I'm able to continue with it it's you know it's it's hard you had a lot of people tell me just like with bass fishing you know when you want to be a pro bass fisherman, not to do it started this youtube deal and i had a lot of people tell me well you can't do it uh, you're late to the game you're this you're that well maybe i am but dude i'm fighting trying to get in there you know what i mean mm-hmm.
2: no i texted you saturday i knew how powerful it was i i had been doing some research for a tournament and here pops up bradley hallman breaking down weiss lake i said well i'm gonna see what he's got to talk about here and he yeah. broke down that part of the lake and i said well, i'm gonna go look at this rock pile i'll just put in over here and sure enough there's three boats and i thought man that's just a coincidence Maybe everybody knows this rock pile that I never knew about. I'm gonna go see what else Bradley said. I watched your video, and this. I'm gonna run up here to this other point. Sure enough, five boats on it. I mean, it. People were definitely watching your video. There's no way they found that without watching it. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. So
2: it's you powerful. know, and that's
0: just that's just us passing on knowledge that we've learned. You know, that that particular video you're talking about was uh, one of my uh, seasonal patterns. You know, how to break down a lake quickly, and I think that was how to break down a river, and uh, because that is the Coosa River, and I've never been there before, but you know, all rivers have characteristics that are the same in the spawn. And so that's basically what I did the video on. I've had a lot of positive feedback from that. Guys really, really enjoy that, that series that I do on my YouTube, but yeah, it's just an example of what we're talking about. Yeah.
2: Oh, it's powerful. You better get a kickback from somebody if they win on one of your spots. I'll let you know Saturday <laughs> where they were at. Okay. Cause I'm not going to be the one that won. So.
1: So, so when you're coming up with ideas for content, Do you focus mainly on on things that you're really interested in doing or do you you try and pay attention to what you think uh, the general public's wanting to see and learn about?
0: So honestly, with me, I'm so I'm so new to YouTube and uh, young into it. I really I just throw a lot of paint on the wall and try to see what sticks and what sticks. I, I try to put more of that color on. Does that make sense? Yeah. And and then what doesn't stick, I just try to stay away from. Them. And this is also goes back to Todd Castledine and Andrew Upshaw, uh, being able to work with these guys. They're throwing up content too, and they have things that don't work. And so you know, we're constantly using each other, talking to each other about what is and what isn't working. So it it helps that learning curve grow a little faster. Um, I use ideas Todd called me this morning and had an idea for me um, that I need to do. Um, some of it some of it has to do with just like. Brian Latimer, guys. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know how, I don't know how, I don't know if he sleeps at night. I mean, he puts out so many videos and they're all so good and he does them so often. Um, I sent him a text the other day. I was like, dude, do you ever sleep? <laughs> I mean, I don't know how he does, it. um, editing, editing part takes me a long time and, um, I, I may spend, I know it sounds terrible guys don't realize how much work's involved in this. Uh, a, a 10 minute video i mean there are some 10 minute videos that i have up on my youtube that i probably have 25 hours of just editing not the day of fishing just the editing on a computer now i'll slower in the beginning because i'm learning and stuff but still it's a lot for 10 minutes
2: and people take that for granted sometimes how much work really does go into it
0: yeah it is it's it's a lot of work
2: but are you enjoying it though
0: I am. I am. You know, I I don't think that we would be able to get this far down the road with it without being able to enjoy it. And the learning curve gets better. And I know that every video I do, I get faster. I learn new tricks, new trades. Um, I've got the guys over at Bass Talk Live, you know, Mark Jeffries and uh, Matt Painrack who both run professional editing software. It's called uh, Vegas Pro. And um, that's the same software that I decided to go with just for the simple fact that I had them in my hip pocket. So if I needed questions and learning curve on how to. Something worked, and because, like I say, guys go to college for four years to learn how to use that stuff. So, so I know um, you, you
1: used some videos the other day. I was watching on you got a color my bait promotion going on in the BFE, the new bait you got coming. Yeah, did, did you get a lot of good response out of that? And and, and how did that wind up turning out for you?
0: <clears throat> so the color competition that we had on the bait that I designed for a Big Bite was was incredible. They ended up with almost fifteen hundred. We were twenty five people short of being fifteen hundred. People had entered into that contest just to pick a color, you know, for, for one of the for one of the BFEs. Um, so there's been a huge response. Um, I've really been thrilled with that. It's been a successful marketing deal. And, and I'm really excited about the bait because I've got a bait now that I can. If I'd had that at Okeechobee, I'd have won $100,000 with it. There's not a doubt in my mind. Um, it's a bait that I can use in my arsenal that I can flip from coast to coast. This is what I designed it for. And whether I'm flipping bushes or flipping grass mass with a big weight, doesn't matter it's it's gonna work on both. That's the way I designed it too. so um, it, it it's been it's been a good response. I got a really good response. My daughter helped me draw that one of the videos that I did which was, was the original design of that. and I got a lot of positive feedback from that. Um, she's a she's fifteen years old, and she's a really good artist, and I can't draw a stick man and so <laughs> When Big Bite came to me to design a, a, a plastic flipping bait, um, I was really excited. And I knew I knew a lot of what I wanted, but getting that onto paper um, and making any sense whatsoever was going to be difficult. And quite honestly, I just thought about her kind of last minute deal. Mm-hmm. And I was like, hey, you know what? She might be able to do this for me. And so we just sat down at the kitchen table one night and I turned on the camera and laid some plastic down and kind of explained what I wanted and the way she went, the BFE was born. I mean, it was really that cool.
2: That's awesome. Any, uh, out of all those color entries, any of them, you're like, dang, I never thought of that one.
0: So the color entries, um, one, so you got two parts to the color contest, you know, the name of the color Mm -hmm. and then two was, was the actual color of the bait and out of 1500, uh, Matt Pangrack and I sat down yesterday. And we got it down to the top five and th- there were so many great entries and, and names and colors. Some of the colors are just way out there. You know, some, some <laughs> guys don't really understand the process of, of pouring plastic and what can and can't be done. Right. Um, and then some of them are just, just so loud, you know, <laughs> the colors are just, you know, white, and orange swirls and, um, but then some of them are just really creative. Um, uh, with the colors and the names um just some great names we had um, one of my favorites was which was really close to it was in one it was one of my top fives was called the bank beater hmm. and uh you know that kind of describes me and and who i am and you know the bait what it is and it, it it's the bank beater you know it's it was a great name for a color um we had one of them that was one of my favorites it was called watercolor we have the uh I don't think you guys have them in Tennessee. No, we, we water don't. We mm-hmm. love that place, though. Yeah, we all love the Water Burgers out here in Texas and Oklahoma. And uh, so it was called Watercolor. It was a really good, really good name. And uh, the Screaming Jeffries from Mark Jeffries. <laughs> <on> that. <laughs> oh, that's good. Yeah, we had some great, great entries.
2: Well, I guess you didn't pick my three year old, entered hers. It was uh, just rainbow, and it was a six color laminate. So. A six color laminate? Yeah, she wanted a rainbow bait. <laughs> I'm gonna guess y'all didn't go with that, but
0: <laughs> no, no, no. If if you guys rainbow. need
2: one, that'd be a, a heck of a good little Christmas gimmicky gift. <laughs> yeah. That
0: that would be six color rainbow laminate bait. Yeah, that'd start be, with start be.
2: with like a June bug bottom with a red shad and then go into a chartreuse white. Yeah. When uh, awesome. when are you guys gonna have those out ready to purchase? I mean it was it supposed to be an ICAST release or
0: no, um, I don't know if that was originally their plan. You know, Mike Mike Bolster was kind of the he he really was the brain of this deal. Um, he he's he's way ahead in the marketing and and development idea with baits, and so he really was the one that kind of started this whole process of how he wanted to build a bait and market the bait, and you know something that was different than doing it through a tournament series. You know where. Mm-hmm pro angler designs a bait and then possibly wins a tournament this is was more controlled through bass talk live and stuff and um i don't even know where we started with this question so early june we're thinking possibly yeah sometime in june i mean this thing's weeks away they started on the mold we released the prototype monday yesterday so we had the final prototype it was okay so they take the single shot mold and turn that into a 15 or 20 shot mold, you know, mm-hmm. and then it goes through the factory and they pump different colors through it. So, um, they could possibly be making baits. I mean, actually making baits within a couple of weeks and then they would have multiple colors and four weeks and they've got multiple colors. Then they're able to send them, send them out.
2: How big of order are you getting for the first batch?
0: How big of order am I going to get? Yeah. I don't know. Um, I just need a couple to flip with. <laughs> I don't need that many. <laughs> Have
2: you gone through all the prototypes yet?
0: No. No, I've still got, i probably still got 10 or 15 of the last prototype that was sent to me.
2: You need to save a couple, put them like in a shadow box or something.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you, Do I agree. you
2: Do you keep some stuff like that? Like any kind of memento stuff?
0: My wife's better at keeping that stuff than I am. I'm always like, just throw that stuff away and she'll she'll get it and hide it from me. And then she'll, you know, I'll find it five six ten years down the road and i'm glad she did when i when i do find it but yeah not usually no i'm not the guy that that keeps that stuff
2: so coming out with uh you'll have that when are you guys going to release the winner of that color you're going to do that on btl here coming up soon
0: yep that will be thursday morning on btl live uh eight thirty central time thursday morning we are going to uh mark jeffries and i'll be on
1: do they get a lifetime supply of that color it was 500, yeah. wasn't it? They got
2: 500
0: Yeah, they devil. get 500 free baits. Yep. That's yeah. awesome. 500 free baits from Big Bite. I think we're going to call him. That's what I think. That's what I told them we should do. Oh, that'd Just be cool. call him right there on live. Yeah. Bring him on the show. That'd be Talk awesome. to him about the color and all that. Um, and I'm going to go through the process. I've got a video coming out on YouTube, too, uh, of choosing the process and how it went. Because like I said, we got it down to the top five. Mm -hmm. and quite honestly the 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 one that we probably picked for number one we're not going to be able to do just because we can't do that type of it's a core shot is i guess what you would call it a core shot and to build that mold for a core shot costs about an extra twenty five hundred dollars oh wow just to have the mold built to pour the plastic that way Mm -hmm. so for one color and one bait right out of the box you know that's a little much so
1: So out of 1,500 entries, at what point when you're going through them, do you get to where you're like, man, this is starting to get tough? Like narrowing down the field is starting to get tricky now.
0: We videoed all that. Matt came over to my house yesterday with the printouts of all 1,500. And we set my boat in the garage, turned on the camera. And uh, he took half of them and I took half. And we went through and we circled the ones that we liked on each page. And then we kind of read those to each other and then we swapped papers with each other to make sure that he didn't overlook something that I liked and that I didn't overlook something that he'd liked. It took us about four and a half hours and then we got it down to the top five. And then once you get it down to five, then, you know, it's pretty difficult at that point.
2: Now, did you find any, uh, top five, top 10 that were like, once you've narrowed it down, did you look and see, does someone else already make this color? Is this an available color?
0: Well, that, that, that is what happened with, uh, so like I said, the first one that we chose, we couldn't do because it's, that, that was kind of both of our favorites. And it, with it being a core shot, we couldn't do that mechanically. So mm-hmm. we got pulled off of that. And, um, so then we were kind of left with, we had three, this was a weird deal too. We had three of them that were, we loved the names of all three and all three were the exact same color. And, uh, they were that watermelon, red, green pumpkin, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the names was a was the four hundred five, which four hundred five is the area code in Oklahoma. But then the more Matt and I talked about it, you know, that California four hundred twenty by Reaction Innovation is kind of that, isn't it? It's a watermelon red green pumpkin.
2: Yep, and it's got a little side. bit of yeah.
0: So we 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 like that color, and obviously, but that color's been done mm-hmm. by Reaction Innovation, and. They called it California 420, so we couldn't really call it the 405. Right. And that same color was also the same color that was called the bank beater, which I was crazy about and probably, you know, would have pushed. Um, and then uh, the other one was called Coast to Coast. Those were the three names, and they were all three the same color. They were watermelon, red, and green pumpkin, which we all know is a great color, right? I
2: mean, oh, absolutely. A lot of
0: fish on, that, on that California 420. So I know the color will sell, but... Um, some people at big bite felt just like what you, the question you just asked, they felt like, Hey, you know, look, this is your bait. It's unique. It's different. Um, the color contest, let's, let's, let's out of your top five. There's gotta be one in there. That's, that's different. And mm-hmm. and there was, there, there was, so that's kind of what got the nod there too. So everybody was involved from big bite to Pangrac rack. And I, I mean, there was a lot of people involved in picking this, this color when it was all said and done. Did you run across any that
1: you're like, man, I'm really, I'm liking this color. I may save it for another day and just change the name come up with my own name for it
0: no uh, I did like the core shot I did guys it was it's really really sounded good It was uh, a watermelon or watermelon red with a core shot black in the middle <laughs> oh yeah I mean if you think about that a watermelon. Yeah black flake or watermelon red flake with a black core shot through the middle of something where you can still see the black through the the green you know yeah that's, that's... that's a really cool looking idea
2: oh i can think about that now that'd be a heck of a trailer too
0: Uh huh. yeah and you can do that with a lot of different colors and baits you know oh, core yeah. shot and like that so um, um I, di- I didn't go do any research panger was talking we were just talking he said i think there's a company called core shot that does that maybe there is i don't know um i just i was just thinking of the idea in my head when i was reading that 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 guy wanted that color and it was very unique and different absolutely
2: i got my wheel spinning now that's kind of cool i might have to go look up course right now
0: i
1: know now that we're talking so we're talking about the design of this bait and, and the bait that, that you helped design here but are there any other new baits that you've seen coming up on the market right now that you think is going to be the next hot thing? You know, we had you know had a bunch of different things come up, different techniques, things like that. You seen anything out there?
0: There was a bait. and I'm not going to say the name of it publicly, but I'll tell you what it was and what it looked like. Um, there was a bait that was at the classic that a guy was selling, and he was from up north, and it was basically a um, what's that big fish they chase up there? The um, the musky. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a musky bait, and they it's a top water bait, and it's basically a big whopper plopper, you know. Mm-hmm. But this one was built for uh, muskies, and um, it's different. It's quite different than the whopper plopper. But uh, he had thousands of them with the classic hanging. There's lots of guys that probably at the bottom as well as myself, but that is a really good-looking bait. And I think that with the tournament seasons all being pushed to the summer and fall instead of being spring spawn, um, you may see that bait play in some tournaments coming up. Cause it'll be a bait that the bass hadn't seen. Well, after
2: you designed this bait, you got, uh, I mean, it was it enjoyable enough. You do it again. If you thought there was a need for something, I mean, I've seen the prototype. I've seen your videos on it. It's definitely something that's not out there. You got yeah. anything else in your head that you've kicked around. That's not out there yet.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's just kind of how my brain works. I've actually got things that maybe not even just baits. Um, I, I had a had a deal. I, I contacted Powerpole about a couple of years ago with some ideas i mean just like the guys in your industry that, that's how my brain works like mm-hmm. i'm out there working with stuff and i'm like man we need this to fix that you know right and i come up with ideas all the time um the bfe with bait wise was i just wanted something that was efficient that that's my biggest deal flipping because mm-hmm. i want something that i don't have to keep tearing a bait to put on another one or my hook keeps pushing through where i can't you know i just want to keep flipping i don't want to fix it every five casts because it bumped the limb and it's going to get hung in the next cast if i don't Mm -hmm. fix it i just want to keep flipping you know more casts i can more casts i can get in a day the more chances i've got to get in a bite and um you know obviously you can't just go with a giant piece of plastic but um that that's really what originated that bait um I definitely got some other bait ideas. I've got a I've got a jig that I've thrown for a long, long time, and uh, it started back with the same thing Terry Butcher, Jason Christie days, and um, I call it the LBJ Little Brown Jig. And a lot of people know about it, and uh, but um, it's kind of
2: we don't have to talk about anymore. that anymore. That's a that's a don't talk about that jig much.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, it's not like it's some giant secret. I mean, Edwin Evers won the classic at Grand Lake with it.
2: No, but I think you've been putting some – if you Google Bradley Holman, LBJ yeah, LBJ's the is the second up. thing that comes up.
0: So, yeah, I've actually had a couple of smaller companies uh, contact me about making that bait, and, and maybe someday I do, but, you know, it's it's going – you know, I don't know. We'll wait and see.
1: What I find interesting is, is you hit on it with the BFE. You know, you saw the need while you are out there fishing, and you, and you made an adjustment and worked on it and came up with an idea – And that's just so similar to the way we operate around here. You know, we all fish and and we do the same thing. We go out every weekend or every afternoon when we get a chance. And if we see something, it's like, man, this can be better. Or this could be changed to make it more efficient or more user-friendly. That's the way we operate here on the boat platform. So I think that's pretty interesting, um, you know, to align the mindsets the same way.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, You know, that's just how my mind works. And and I can't take all the credit for this bait design. I mean, Big Bike has taken and led me down the path and those those people have done a lot for me to to get me to this point i mean scott and some of those guys over there they they know they've done this for many 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 years and they know exactly the process and what all's involved and i've learned a tremendous amount um doing this uh and 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 yeah definitely i would definitely look forward to doing another uh, some type of bait or or something in the future for sure I know.
2: Well, we look forward to that and look forward to get our hands on some of those as soon as those are up. Um, You getting ready to get back out and get fishing? you ready for this, Stella?
0: I am. Um, I actually have moved. My my wife and I built a house 17 years ago uh, in Norman, and we have lived there for 17 years. And we have bought a different house and moved in the last week. And we moved up to Edmond, Oklahoma, which is about 30 miles away. It's not that far from where we were, but. Um, just the moving process most you know, all you, you and all your listeners have been through and um, so right now i'm just trying to get unboxed and back in the house and, and get things going before we do start up because i know that when june gets here we're going to fire off pretty quick i am excited that the opens are you know all going to happen and that nothing is completely canceled and i'm excited about fishing in the summer and fall i think you're going to see a lot of strengths come out from a lot of guys that mm-hmm.
2: don't,
0: you know not all spawning and springtime fishing uh, some grinders I'm about that there's definitely going to be some grinders 110
2: no that'll be awesome um and you're running the 920 you've run a 920 what for four years now five years
0: i have dude i'm bad about that i get something that i like and uh and i just don't change and like um you guys know a lot more about it than i do but you know you, we've cut you know phoenix we've come out with a couple of new boat holes and everything since the 920 was ever invented mm-hmm. you know um I I just stay the same. I I really, really, really like that boat. Um, It does all things well, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Like every category, it does well. It may not be the very best in one category, but it's never poor in any category. It does everything good.
2: You've always liked the 20-foot boat?
0: You know, I I think my first Phoenix was a 21, pretty sure. Um, I like the 20-footers because of my style of fishing um docks is really where it comes in big uh the 21 footer is a lot of boats turn around in a small area Mm -hmm. and to get into and uh, the 20 footer it's there's a big difference between that 920 and 921 um just the ease of which i can get in and out of and fish certain places and so that's probably the biggest influence um i really like the way the 920 rides in rough water um, I've got a little more bow control with a hydraulic jack plate on a 920 than I do with 21, meaning it just responds a little better to the jack plate positioning because it's a shorter, lighter boat. Right. Um, I like that. That was one of the really big lessons I learned coming into Phoenix in the beginning. Um, I had never ran a hydraulic jack plate, maybe a couple of years. I had had one, but it just didn't have that big effect on the overall, um, Uh, the way the boat handled but phoenix is very very sensitive to the hydraulic jack plate meaning i can i can do a lot of different things just with jack plate positioning in different water conditions with that boat Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and um uh, that was a huge thing that i learned with that boat in the beginning early on um greg strom kind of your your engineer there was the one that kind of got me down that path. And the first time or two I talked to Greg, I was like, "Yeah, he's not right." He didn't. And sure enough, I get home and do the things that he suggested, and he was dead on. <laughs> I was like, "Wow!" Mm-hmm. And so through time, I became to realize how intelligent he was and how much he knew what was going on too was was pretty incredible. Um, but yeah, that uh, that nine twenty man, it's, it's been a good boat for me. Yeah, Greg's he like got,
1: a, he's a boat whisperer. It's kind of crazy how he can he can just uh hear of an issue or go out, go take it out for a minute and change this, yeah. change this, we're good to go. Yeah.
0: And he, he's my kind of guy too, you know. He's kind of that, you know, he walk he walks quietly and carries a very big stick. Oh, you know yeah. what I
1: mean? He's from Oklahoma too.
0: <laughs> I didn't know that.
2: Yep. He's forgot more than I'll ever know, that's for sure.
0: Yeah. He, he's a smart guy. No he doubt. Is.
2: Um, so once you get back out, I mean you're gonna have what, seven more? You got seven more opens?
0: yep we basically got the whole season we've only got one in the bag right now and uh, i got out of florida with a check and uh i'm happy with that so uh the next one we're going to start right here we're going to kick it off in oklahoma so we'll just bring all them boys here it's fine with me we can start here in june on the river there you go we call it, we call it the ditch because it's so narrow but uh yeah the river's a is a good place to to have one in june
2: no, that'll be awesome well man we look we really appreciate you taking time out uh I know you got some editing to do. We don't want to take you away from 25 hours of editing, but uh, we'd like to do a little, uh, little hot seat with you, just some rapid fire stuff, wrap things up. And uh, man, again, thanks for uh, taking
0: time out with us. Yeah, I appreciate you guys having me on. All right, Brian. All
1: right, we'll get started on this hot seat. Would uh, you rather have jelly or honey on a biscuit?
0: Honey.
2: Would you rather fish with Lincoln Riley or Bob Stoops? Bob Stoops.
1: Three baits you have to use for the rest of your life.
0: Three baits I gotta use the rest of my life. Uh, three baits the rest of my life: half ounce spinner bait, LBJ, and a BFE.
2: Would you rather lay brick
0: or hang sheetrock? Which would I rather do? I'd much rather lay brick. No questions asked.
1: Uh, would you rather have to fish a tournament using a ten foot crappie rod or a three foot kid combo?
0: Man, I don't know. I've been using some of those big crappie rods. We've been chasing those crappie around <laughs> with that Garmin LiveScope, and I like that thing. Um, I am going to say the crappie rod, without a doubt.
2: All right. It's sunny out. Would you rather have no hat or no shoes?
0: Sunny out, no hat or no shoes. No, no shoes. Can't live without a hat. All right.
1: Here's a throwback. You'd have to run with a flasher unit or a hand-controlled trolling motor.
0: Oh, that was pretty easy for me. I don't, I'm not giving up my trolling motor. So you, I, I only need a grab and take them off. <laughs>
2: <laughs> all right. You got to fish all next year with a bait cast and pole, but it's only a six, six or a spinning rod. And it's a seven, six.
0: Oh, the six, six bait caster.
2: All right. Golf
1: or soccer,
0: golf or soccer. <laughs> That'd oh. be my response. <laughs> I have a daughter that plays soccer and I don't have anybody that plays golf. So I'm going to, I don't know, man. The thing about golf is, is you can always stop at the ponds. That's what my grandfather golfed. And, uh, <laughs> and he would take me with him hoping that I would start to like golf. But the first pond we'd come to, I'd always jump off the golf cart and grab a rod and say, pick me up when y'all are done playing.
2: <laughs> All right. Best quarterback to come out
0: of Oklahoma. <laughs> Ooh, there's a tough one. I I've got my pick. The best all-time ever, Troy Aitman. A lot of guys don't even realize he played for the University of Oklahoma, but he did. He was uh, recruited by Barry Switzer. Um, Troy Aitman's the best to ever come out of Oklahoma. Now, he transferred from here and went to UCLA. uh, But he played for Oklahoma, played against Miami, both of them ranked one and two in the nation at the time. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, Troy Aitman's the best, the best to graduate, finish school at OU. Um, All-time, all-time, all-time. That's tough because, I mean, there's been three or four in the NFL just recently. Yep. God, it's tough. That's just so hard. I mean, I even go back to Jamel Holloway's that were just incredible wishbone quarterbacks. I mean, incredible. Um, I think that when it's all said and done, when it's all said and done, I think Kyler Murray is the best one that's ever played at Oklahoma because we're going to be judging them off their NFL careers, right? I mean, that's what's going to end up happening. I and
2: don't know. I, I was going to go with who you thought while they were there yeah. and graduated, who was the best one to come out? Who was your favorite Wild to watch really? on Saturday?
0: Well, it's hard. It's hard to beat Baker. It, but like I say, I mean, we only got one year of Kyler Murray mm-hmm. and, and, and he followed Baker. Um, and like I say, that played here, guys. I mean, Jamel Holloway was stupid, incredibly good. I know that was a long time ago, but um, Sam Bradford was incredible. See, that was the at one I University thought. University of Oklahoma, my gosh. I thought um, while they were there,
2: Sam was my pick.
0: God, Sam was good. Jason White, before he got hurt, you know, he yeah. won the Heisman mm-hmm. Trophy also. Yeah. And his injuries took him away from his career later on. He just he just never recovered from the knee injuries. But Kylie, um, that guy was incredible. You think, Oklahoma's had some phenomenal quarterbacks.
1: You think Oklahoma nope. will ever join the SEC?
0: You know, me growing up outside of Knoxville there and growing up a Tennessee fan, um, I always hoped that that would happen. And when all this conferencing thing started going down, I really thought in my heart that that's where Oklahoma was going to go. And then all the talk started about the West Coast. And we just do not fit in with the, with the West Coast. And what I what I mean by that is, is – you know, I, the people that run the university make those decisions, obviously, and, and they think different than, like, all university people think different than the general public does. But um, I, I hope that happens. The SEC would be a good fit for Oklahoma. Oh, it would be. Um, I know, as us as a fan base, we would really enjoy it. Um, I know the games would be really good. It would just make great games every Saturday. You know, I'm a season ticket holder. Um, I take my whole family. We got six seats in that place and uh we call it the Palace on the Prairie and it's a pretty special place. And uh, I know that I know some of my, my Tennessee fans and people that I talk to back home and in, in fishing too, that are from SEC people, they uh they talk about, you know, having Texas A and M and Missouri and I'm like, you know, like, like they beat up on them, so they're gonna beat up on Oklahoma. And I'm like, Boys, <laughs> I promise you there's a difference. <laughs>
2: I but, was going to say, I'd trade Missouri for y'all just because yeah. it would make some better football <laughs> on Saturday.
0: Yeah, I mean, we we would love to be out there. And, and who knows, maybe someday that does happen.
2: I guess we got off our rapid fire there. <laughs> yeah, we got <laughs> on to college football.
0: Yeah. Imagine that. They could go Kansas on for days. Guys and Oklahoma guys, that's not hard to do. Are you guys all ball fans? I uh, know no, idea.
2: I'm an Auburn fan.
0: Auburn?
1: I'm a balls fan. It drives me nuts because we Winchester's so close to the Alabama line. Yeah, Like, I 90% of people are Alabama fans, and
0: I can't stand it.
2: My wife's yeah. an I Alabama
0: they, I bet they weren't. I bet it wasn't that way in 1991, 92, 93. Definitely no, not I bet they was all wearing orange, son. <laughs> yeah. Probably Probably. It wasn't
2: that way from 2002 to 2007 either. Uh-uh. No. Anyway. All right. One color sunglass lens.
0: Oh, without a doubt, is that new Silver Sunrise from Costa. You that, like that, it? That thing? Oh. I thought I had discovered something no one had ever seen before, you know, and I was wearing them one day and I had them on in the bag line and I turned around with them FLW tour events and they were taking pictures and it was on a Saturday and everybody made the cut and everybody behind me, as far as I could see, was wearing nothing but those sunglasses.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I just ordered a set of those lenses.
0: Yep. Silver sunrise. They're just, they're kind of like the BFE. You (laughs) can put them on, you can wear them on sunny, cloudy, rainy, doesn't matter. You just, those are the ones you wear. There's no more changing lenses. That's awesome. I,
1: the only other question I've got for you is, you listen to music while you're graphing?
0: While I'm graphing? Yeah. Uh, no, no, I try to stay hooked up mentally. If I, if I start listening to music, I get too lost. I, I've tried listening to music in the boat, fishing and graphing and all kinds of things, but it, it I can't stay focused.
2: My last one was, uh, what's your favorite type of Coke? Coke? Yeah, like Diet Coke,
1: Dr. Pepper. Coke. They don't call it Coke out in Oklahoma, probably oh
0: no well i mean tennessee we call it coke yeah, so, yeah, yeah yeah i mean uh yeah i think coke uh probably man that's a tough one i'm a big mountain dew guy okay i uh, i'd say it's probably mountain dew
2: mountain dew diet or regular
0: yeah. oh regular
2: regular
1: we need to get him some sun drop
0: that's an east tennessee deal too
2: well shoot man we really do appreciate it brad uh anything uh wh- what's what's uh what's a youtube channel where people can follow you too
0: uh you find me everything it's bradley Holman fishing or just bradley Holman. you can find me youtube twitter insta facebook doesn't matter i'm I'm on all of them and uh yep bradley holman you'll find me doesn't seem to be too many of us running around
2: no and why do you always stick with bradley like i'm timothy but i went by timmy when i was little and now i'm tim you always stuck with bradley never went by brad
0: no i, I went by brad most of my life um fishing started Bradley I don't really? know why but like yeah maybe maybe my 40 you know maybe my W9 I don't know but um tournament wise I started filling out just my full name on the deal and then it just started being read, and tournament directors calling me that I mean from ever ago and so then I just kind of left it that way because it, it it allowed me early on it allowed me just to differentiate between people that were calling me what it was associated with if they mm-hmm. called me and called me Brad then it was somebody that I knew personally or something and if it was bradley it was always fishing and then then we started fishing and i just left it and never changed it
2: i just wanted to know that i got a i got a young timmy at home right now so he's probably going to get through the same deal but yeah look, i
0: definitely grew up most all my friends growing up called me brad not bradley
2: well look man we do appreciate it um hey did uh corona hurt your chinese reels by the way are you still able no. to get them
0: yeah, I'm still able to get them. 'em. I've been disappointed with the last batch I got.
2: Were they green they're the green ones, right?
0: I got some of the green ones, yeah. Is that the one? I ones? haven't been as disappointed with them as I have a couple of others. There's there, I got some black and blue ones that I'm not crazy about at all.
2: I'm liking them little green ones for braid. They're, yeah. they're not bad.
0: No, they're fine. Did you get the high gear ratio ones? Mm-hmm. The nine to ones. Yeah, they're they're good.
2: Because, I don't know how. It's got many nineteen nine, bearings, thirty bearings, something like that. Something crazy. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I don't know how many Chinese reels I sold by mentioning that one time <laughs> on Fast Talk Live, but I know that I get a lot of messages about them
2: still. That's just a cool story. I
0: like it. Yeah. I did. I mean, it's not a lie. I won Lanier with one of those things in my hand. Uh, it was a seven to one. It had Chinese block lettering across the side of it.
2: <laughs> I like them. I'm going to use them this year. I got. I think I had to buy five to get a little bit of a price discount, so.
0: I bet I sold more reels than any pro sold in 2019. Probably.
2: (laughs) It'd be nice to know what that that factory, how many they shipped over here from you.
0: Yeah, yeah, I'd like to have got a commission of that.
2: Well, look, man. Again, we appreciate it. We'll talk to you soon, Brad.
0: All right, guys, appreciate Appreciate it.